I'll do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 15th, 2024, and this is episode 3,448 of the Survival Podcast, and since it is Thursday, 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 it's not today for monster trucks, that's Friday, 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 right? It is the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A show. I got a bunch for you today, including two new prospective members of the Expert Council, kind of with their audition for their first submission. I liked both of them a whole lot. I think we'll definitely keep these guys around, but I'm going to need questions for them, and we'll talk about that when we hear from them. But we'll lead off today with Dr. Ron Paul and the Liberty Highlights and his team. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams will talk about how the Senate is throwing good money after bad in Ukraine. And in the show notes, I added something to what Chris Rossini over there sent me, comma, again. And I mean it for Ukraine, and I mean it for all eternity. Since when has our government not thrown good money after bad? It's easy to do when it's not your money, and you don't do anything to earn it, and you can simply steal it and make more anytime you want. Uh, next, in that same group, we'll hear, you can't end greed, but maybe we can end the Fed. Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini will talk about that. Then we'll move on to some stuff that's more, you know, gardening permaculture-based. Nick Ferguson will talk about how and when and how far back to prune elderberries. Somebody got some advice to basically cut their elderberries all the way back almost to the ground. I sent that over to Nick for his opinion on it. Nicole Sauces, I'm going to answer a question for us. When do you take a side hustle into the world of the aboard, above-board business? I mean, when do you start actually reporting your revenue? You sell your neighbor a bucket of figs for 10 bucks or even 50 bucks or whatever for cash. If you report that to the government, there's a word for that that I won't use. Uh, but there's a point where you have revenue coming in, especially if you begin to take revenue in forms like, oh, I don't know, credit card, PayPal, Venmo, etc. You get 1099 and all. So when do you make the decision to just go completely above board with your business? And, and I don't know what Nicole said yet. I haven't listened to it. My, my actual response to that is the second it goes beyond selling some stuff to your neighbor over the fence for cash. And there's a reason, and I'll fill it in if Nicole doesn't cover it, because I'll listen with y'all, and I don't know what she's going to say. Then one of our new uh, uh, prospective expert council members, and I think he's going to work out just fine, been on the show before, got him scheduled for an interview coming up soon. Uh, he is big-time carnivore. That's not exactly why he's here, though. He's also into cross-fitness, and big-time fitness guy, built a gym and, and, and made it successful right through the middle of the COVIDs, Andy McCann. He's going to talk today about what you can do for fitness when you're on the road. Doc Ken Berry will talk about B6 on the carnivore diet. If you do the math, it might look a little difficult to get enough of that vital element B or that vital vitamin vitamin B6 on the carnivore diet. Ken will talk about that. Joe Brenton, who you've never heard from before, you will hear from today. Uh, he's sort of an outdoors, wilderness, foraging, camping, hiking kind of guy. He's going to talk about how to find what local plants are available in your area. And you might have said, hiking? What about Dixie Mills? Oh, Dixie's having, had, having a baby. Uh, Dixie has not been uh, getting segments in. 
Dixie will always be welcome back, but right now Dixie is on a long-term hiatus. So we need somebody in that space and someone that can cover more like the foraging, etc., which is what you'll hear about today is welcome. So we'll hear from Joe Brenton today how to find out what local plants are available in your area for foraging. And then I got a question that I found very interesting and I imagine it may cause some butt hurt in some people. And it was why Jack do you not teach, endorse or recommend the Mitlider the Mitlider garden method? If you've never heard of it, this is a method that is kind of sort of like I'm going to say hydroponics in the ground. Uh, you make these big piles, you put all these chemicals on them and you evaluate it across time, you make amendments, you mix up specific mixes for specific plant types. It is not horrible. But it's not what I'm going to teach. Because, well, you'll hear why when I get to it. And I make a real effort to both be passionate about what I believe here and at the t- same time that I'm doing that, say to people who want to do it, go forth, God bless. I am not putting you down as an individual human being for choosing something different than me. Just don't expect me to endorse it. And I imagine even with that effort, there will be some gnashing of teeth, some wailing, and some butt hurt. And you know, if you don't want an answer, if you don't want a, a, an answer to a question, don't ask me, right? If you're not ready to hear any answer, including the one you don't want, don't ask me for it. And I'm not saying that so much of the person that's asked the question, but I've actually been asked about this quite a bit. I think it is a bad direction to take myself, and I'll wait for my segment to explain why. That will also be recorded into a video and available independently as well because I thought it might actually get some traction on YouTube or be well shared or something like that. So that is what we're going to cover today. Before we do that, let's hear from our sponsors of the day and pay some bills. How about USA Berkey Filters? Dot com from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Jeff is back as a sponsor. He sponsored us for a long time, was gone for a couple years, has come back around. He has all the stuff you need to get started with Berkey water filtration or for service, parts, etc., new filters for your existing Berkey. He is the original Berkey Guy, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There is no reason for you to buy your Berkey stuff from some dude at a gun show that started working with Berkey last week. Use the guy that's been around forever, been working with Berkey for 20 plus years, one of the top dealers in the country, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at usaberkeyfilters.com. Next up today, Above Phone. Take back your tech, guys. Not only does your phone spy on you, not only do the apps spy on you, not only do the carriers spy on you, they all collaborate and report all their information to anybody that will pay for it and the United States government through things like the PRISM plan. Yes. And then they censor things and decide what you can see and what you can't see. And if they don't like an app like, you know, Domus, they just either turn it off or cripple it or make the person that made it cripple it because they don't like you having the freedom to do what you want. What if you could make it all go away? You can with above phone. You can make all that go away. You can get a modified uh, uh, Samsung Galaxy phone, your choice of operating system on it, your own independent app store that is not subject to any of the censorship. But, Jack, I need this one or two or three apps that are only inside the real Google Play Store, and I need it to work that way for those things. Great. You can create a little sandbox. You stick them in there, and they're like in a little app prison. And they can only do their devilish details when you decide it's important enough to use them. And if you're like, Jack, how will I learn to use a new phone? It comes with an hour of free consulting with an above phone expert that will walk you through how to use your new phone for free on the phone. 
Isn't that cool? And yes, you can pull your SIM card right out of your existing phone, plug it in, keep your phone number and all that good stuff. Right? But what if you're not ready to transition yet? Then you can get an above phone, you can use it when it's attached to Wi-Fi, and you can still use your, your regular phone for phone things when you need to. There's a lot of flexibility here. And they'll give you 75 bucks off any of the phones if you're, in a, if you're an MSB member as well, which will pay for your membership for a year and a half all by itself. There is a better way. Above Phone will show you how. Learn more about them at AbovePhone.com. With that, let's drop on in and hear from the Ron Paul team of the Liberty Highlights for the week. They called it a national security supplemental, but it had nothing to do with America, right? <laughs> had nothing to do. Senate passes $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, despite Trump attacks, that evil Trump. This is from Politico. So... Uh, everyone knows the story by now. They should. They try to put this turkey through with uh, some the border language. You talked about it last week. The border stuff was total garbage, totally terrible stuff. And so they said, okay, we'll just take that out and we'll just give you a bill with aid. But we won't, we won't even try to put a little bit of sugar with the medicine. We'll just give you the aid bill. And so that's, uh, that's what they did. Uh, and as you mentioned... Uh, Senator Paul, Senator Vance, and a few others, they tried to filibuster last night. They were up all night. Uh, here's kind of a cute quote from, uh, from Senator Paul. I love to talk. That's one of my favorite things to do. Yes, and I slept up, and I slept all day yesterday waiting for this. I'm going to take Adderall. Nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he didn't want to get in trouble oh, with boy, dad. He'd be yeah. in trouble. <laughs> he'd get in trouble with dad and mom. Um, but that, you know, valiant efforts up all night, talking all night. Um, yeah, okay, they say, oh, ultimately they didn't, that's not the point. They brought a lot of attention that would have been brought to it. But the one part, I was watching this last night that I thought was just great because it was down my alley, and that was, but we don't have any money. There is no money. <laughs> yeah. And he's put, put the question, of, where are you going to get the money for this? Yeah. But you know what? Nobody raised their hand. I know where it is. Let me explain it to it. It didn't, didn't happen. Yeah. So, it, 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 but it's the question that uh, this is a few of us over the years have been asking. Of course, you could go down the list of the questions you ask. Well, you don't have the money. How about authority? Where did yeah. you get this authority to police the world and run an empire? You know, they, they don't even ask those questions. That's why they're not forced to answer it. We're going to talk a little bit about inflation. We've talked about inflation in the past, and there's still a little bit of misunderstanding. We came across, actually you came across, a statement made by uh, not our favorite senator. Mm -hmm. And uh, the senator that we're going to uh, quote is uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, as a consumer, I too am not uh, crazy about shrinkflation, but I understand why it happens. Uh, you know, you're, you're paying the same amount for less of a product. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's, you know, their corporations are greedy. That's, that's just not good enough. I mean, uh, they're all greedy at the same time. And who isn't greedy? Uh, Elizabeth Warren? I mean, we all uh, have to battle greed. That's a human trait. Uh, so it's a little bit more complex than that. It actually has to do with Elizabeth Warren and what she does in the government. The government spends... Uh, 34 trillion more than it has. I mean, that sounds like greed to me. And uh, the Fed ends up printing lots of dollars in order to make that happen. When you print lots of dollars, the dollars that you have lose value. It's just like anything else. If you collect baseball cards, you you like them because they're uh, you know the more valuable ones are the ones that there's less of. 
But if the company prints another trillion of them, what's going to happen to your cards? They're going to lose value. So it's the same thing with the U.S. dollar. And uh, companies, like I said, I understand why they do what they do, because they, too, have rising costs. So how are they supposed to deal with it? Are they supposed to go and explain to all their customers, each and every one, you know, it's the government did this, the Fed printed the money? They can't do that. And even if they did, they, you know, the government would somehow find a reason to come after them. Uh, and many times, the companies like Doritos, she mentioned, and Oreos, they don't even deal with the consumer directly. They deal with, you know, all their distributors. So what are they supposed to do? The only other option they have is to adapt. They have to cut costs, and one of the ways is shrinkflation. You know, they you, you pay the same amount for less. So no matter what the companies choose, the politicians are going to smear them. There's no way out of it. So they have to choose what they believe uh, is is the best choice. And so they choose shrinkflation, cutting costs, and here come the politicians. Ah, oh, you're greedy, you're greedy. You know, it's nonsense. You know, the politicians are the kings of greed in our society, especially in our modern government, where they, you know, go in with nothing and come out with multi-multi-millions being so-called public servants. So, unfortunately, in this case, the companies are not to blame. It, it rests squarely on the overspending politicians and the counterfeiting Fed. This is something that I think people should realize that there is, a, there, there is an answer to this mess, but it's not going to come by the likes of these uh, members of Congress who want to just regulate and not deal with uh, the spending. I'll just say on the end the Fed thing, I love Dr. Paul. And I love the idea of ending the Fed. But if you think you're going to do it with politics or negotiation, it's not going to happen. It's going to have to be done against their will by creating a new reserve currency that people choose over the dollar. That's the only way you'll ever end the Fed. As long as the dollar is where people feel most comfortable keeping their wealth, then they can continue to print more dollars as long as that illusion remains intact. It has to be wrested away from them. You guys know how to do it. I'm not going to tell you again. You know what to do. But the other thing I want to point out, because I ended up skipping this in my show yesterday. I skipped a couple bullet points because it went long. And that is this idea about giving money to the border and this narrative that's being created that it's all the Republicans' fault. It's all the Republicans' fault. Um, <laughs> yeah, first of all, that's an asinine argument. It's not like I defend Republicans or anything. But if you want to know who made the border as bad as it is, it's the Democrats and it's Joe Biden and the policies of his administration. We, we, we all are aware of that. But this idea of, okay, we'll have a border bill and that's going to fix the problem is asinine. A, a man is running the country who's, who's honestly got dementia, and anybody that says he doesn't is just in, in denial, or they just hate the other side so bad they're willing to lie. You, you choose which one it is. And we're, we're going to have this issue where, you know what, we can fix it if we give this person power that he already has. Joe Biden tomorrow with a stroke of a pen could order the border closed or could order a limit on the number of people coming across the border. This bill, by law, would set the bill the, 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 the limit at 5,000, but by law they're not supposed to be able to just come walking in the way that they are, so they're already ignoring the law. But you're going to give more money to do what? Process more illegal immigrants faster. That's exactly what it's for. It's not designed to do anything to keep people out. The only people that have done anything to keep people out is the state of Texas, and Joe Biden's solution is... Well, it's working, so let's cut down their wire and their wall so that it won't work. It, 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 it's an asinine 
mindset. But I'll tell you what I would never do. I would never give more money to people who are already doing a bad job with what I've already given them. You know, when people say, well, if we just paid teachers better, then you would get teachers who are paid better to do the same shitty job. That's what you would get. I have never given anybody a raise in my life and all of a sudden their work got better. I've had people that strive to do better constantly, so I gave them raises. That's how it works. You want more money, do a good job with what you have. Do the best you're capable of what you have with what you have. If you're actively working against what I want and I give you more money, I'm going to get more of what I don't want. That's what this so-called border bill was. By the way, this border bill, before they took the border part out of it, it gave like $6 billion dollars to the border and like $60 billion to Ukraine and $11 billion to Israel, and the left was shrieking, it's Donald Trump's fault for killing the border bill to not cl killing, closing the border, while they're calling Biden genocide Joe and saying we shouldn't be giving any money to Ukraine, they're begging the U.S. government to give more money to Israel, I'm sorry, they don't want more money given to Israel, they're, they're begging the government to give more money to Israel than to the border to fix the border. Good money after bad? Yeah, you think. Let's talk about something else before I get an aneurysm. Nick Ferguson will talk about how far back and when to prune elderberries. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer for Tim on elderberries. And his question is, question for Nick Ferguson. I am in central Indiana and I have elderberry bushes that have grown to about 10 feet and have produced well the last couple of years. My master gardener friend tells me I should prune them back to the ground. This sounds a little extreme to me and I don't want to lose a season of production waiting for them to grow back. <clears throat> is this good advice or is there a better way to maintain them? Thanks, Tim. Uh, yes, there is a better way to do this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, jokes aside. Uh, some elderberries do well being cut to the ground every year. Others don't. Without knowing the cultivar, I can only guess. So I'll give you some info on how they grow and produce and let you pick whatever solution you're comfortable with. So elders produce generally on first year, second year, and third year wood. And normally the cane either doesn't fruit in its fourth year onwards or it produces very little or it just dies. So after that, that third year, it's pretty much worthless generally. First year wood produces a small to moderate amount and the largest crops are found on second year wood. So if we are going for the most production, then we're going to leave those canes to grow into their second year and produce, and then we are going to cut those second year canes down. So you can grow elderberries in two rows, prune them to the ground in alternating year patterns, ensuring a small crop from one of the rows that's producing first year wood and a larger crop from the other row that was allowed to grow a second year. Or you could alternate cutting down every other plant in a row. Or you could cut down half of a row of elderberries one year and the other half the next year. You get the idea. Or if you have enough berries growing and enough space, you can just double up the number of plants and chop them all down every winter. The more intensive style of management is to simply selectively thin each cluster every winter to cut down all of the largest canes that are likely to be unproductive leaving the small and medium canes that are likely to be the first and second year wood that will be the most fruitful. Or you could get really 
you know, really careful about it and like spray paint different colors on the the canes in alternating years so that you know what are, you know, last year's canes um, or what canes are three years old and you can just cut all those big ones off that have the old spray paint. Um, which wh- Whichever method you use really just depends on how many plants we're talking about and how much effort you want to put into it versus how much production you hope to get out of them each year. Personally, you know, I don't have enough to just mow them down yearly, so I prune mine selectively. As I get my nursery production expanded and I'm focused on propagation, I'm going to be cutting mine down every year to harvest cuttings for customers. So right now we have about six cultivars, and hopefully later this year that's going to go up to about a dozen because I want to have a nice good selection for my customers. If all goes well this summer, we're going to have a lot of new things available at Rare Plant Store next winter. Hope that answer helps you out, man. Until next week, keep the good questions coming. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and rareplantstore.com. Do good things. So basically, you kind of want to manage them the way you do a typical cane fruit like a blackberry. You prune out your third-year canes because they're going to be non-productive. Your second-year canes will be your most productive, and your first-year canes are your regrowth. But I would say I've had best results with elders by even those second-year canes tipping them back to about three foot in height. That seems to be what works best for me because sometimes they'll be six, seven foot tall. And so by tipping them back, I get more of a brushy format in them. And I tend to get a more convenient to harvest plant. I, I will put it that way. Now, I want to throw out one little tip. I've talked about this before, but here and there sporadically uh, for harvesting elderberries. I've seen all kinds of ways people go to harvest elderberries. Some just say, just pick the berries and you'll get blue hands and, and clean your hands as best you can and you'll have stains. I've seen people wear, like, nitrile gloves or something like that. And it's just, you know, if I'm picking elderberries, it's pretty hot out. Wearing rubber gloves when it's hot out is gross. Your hands are going to sweat. What I do is I just take a five-gallon bucket with me and a pair of pruners. And everywhere there's a cluster of berries, I cut and I prune back, you know, a good four or five inches of stem with it. Cut the whole, you know, once they're, they're, they're all ripe, just cut the whole... Uh, pancake of berries basically in a cluster off and throw them in the bucket. I then when I get enough in the bucket that that's as many as I feel like dealing with on that day, I throw the bucket in the freezer, the deep freezer, really. And I wait a few hours and the berries freeze. And then I go out and I take them all out of, uh, take another bucket, a clean bucket, and I smack them on the sides and run my hands on them. And all the frozen berries with all the juice frozen falls into the bucket. Then I dump that into a bag and throw the bag back in the freezer. And then I take from that bag to use them as I see fit. Since nobody sits down and eats handfuls and handfuls of elderberries, and you really shouldn't, and they're used more for like making an extract or making meat or something like that, freezing them actually makes that process work better anyway because it ruptures the cell walls in them and you get a better juice extraction. So that's that's how I harvest them, little add-in there. And now let's hear about when did we take the side hustle above board for tax purposes from Nicole Sauce. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee with a question about when to turn your side hustle into an official business with the IRS. And this is the exact text of the question. I have a question for Nicole. 
about what I should consider before turning a side hustle into something official with the IRS. I've started a content business over the last year and have the opportunity to teach some online and in-person classes this year. They can make around 10 grand. A good chunk of payment would probably come in via Venmo. I have a nine to five with an employer and I like the idea of a side hustle of tax advantages Jack has mentioned in the past. I understand no one is providing tax advice. Well, you know, I am not agorist tax advice who has already done a segment on Jack's show. And I would say a business at the $10,000 level may not be in his target area where he thinks he can help you the most, but I would definitely head over to agoristtaxadvice.com forward slash LFTN and sign up for his email list because you'll get a guide about things that you can write off with taxes. And he sends this awesome weekly email that highlights ways that you can take advantage of the tax code. So then let's go back to making things official with the IRS. If you have income coming in from a side hustle that you're doing, you're going to end up reporting that one way or another, right? Because you're probably getting a 1099, which will tell the IRS, hey, this person earned more than $600 at this thing. And when you do your personal income taxes, if you do not include that as part of your income, then uh, the IRS might get mad and come after you after for some taxes. So that being said, I am not the right person to tell you whether you should be an S corporation, an LLC, at what point that makes sense. Uh, that would be something that I would talk to my accountant about at the $10,000 level. I wouldn't necessarily go to a, you know, go to tax attorney and CPA and the whole thing, unless you're planning to turn that $10,000 business into a $100,000 business the next year and then a million dollar business the next year or whatever that trajectory looks like for you. At $10,000, I can tell you personally, what I did was file that as a sole proprietorship, so under my social security number, but doing that allowed me to take advantage of write-offs like mileage, driving to and from things, and other reasonable expenses, which means the money comes in, I take my business expenses out, and then the rest of that is, inc is included in my income tax return, and I do have to pay taxes on that. Also be aware that you will be paying your full payroll in, uh, tax on that. So your, if you are a W-2 employee right now, your employer pays half of your taxes to the government. So that can result in a, in a bit of a surprise at the end of the year if you have not set aside stuff in savings to cover that. And then, of course, at some levels, you will have a quarterly quarterly deposit you need to make with your state to make sure that you do not owe more than, uh, I don't know what the amount is anymore. It used to be like 900 bucks or something. If you owe more than 900 bucks to the government for your payroll taxes because you had 1099 income, then they charged you interest on that. And I don't like to give the government money, you know, like more money than they should have. And that's a way to give them more money than they should have. So knowing what that line is and what it looks like your your tax burden will be based on the money that's coming in is important because you'll know if you need to file a quarterly report versus you can just kind of do it annually as a sole proprietor or whatever you're going to do. So I would say your next steps are make the money. When you make the money, then it's easier to pay the person to give you the advice to figure out how to structure how you're tracking the money Definitely sign up for Matthew's email at agoristtaxadvice.com forward slash LFTN. 
And he also has a webinar coming up in a couple of weeks. So you might want to just jump into that too. So you just become aware of more ways that you can take this side income and start leveraging that towards your future success. I hope this helps you. I'm sure other expert council members, because you said this could go to anybody, extra, other expert council members will have different perspectives. But I'm excited for you. Like, that's awesome. You have some side income coming in, and that's a good place to start. Also, oh, one more thing. You cannot count on money that comes through Venmo, which is owned by PayPal as money that is fence post money, that there is a digital signature there and a possibility you could get a 1099. I don't know what their current policies are, but just know you're leaving a digital trackable uh, document out there about the money coming in. So this is not like, this is not something I would be trying to push under the rug or anything, if you know what I mean. Anyway, hope this helps. If you guys are interested in developing small business startup skills, improving your homestead skills, getting to know people who you can count on, I think you should really consider April 6th and 7th coming up to Camden, Tennessee and coming to the Self-Reliance Festival. We've got a great lineup of speakers that are going to be there, including Angry American. If you've read his books, you can meet him in person, get your books signed, or buy a book from him and get it signed on the spot. And we've got a whole bunch of demonstrations, including Alaskan-style chainsaw milling this time. That's the, that's one I'm kind of excited to see because I've never seen that in in the flesh, so to speak. And then, of course, before and after, we have a lot of valuable workshops, including a Fight Like a Girl women's self-defense class that men can take too, uh, a wild edible class, an herbalism class, a an emergency medical class. We might even get an extra class on uh, setting up your area study. And you, if you know somebody who's very prominent who does those, you know who I'm talking about. But I'm not going to announce that until I have that person confirmed. Anyway, that's all over at selfreliancefestival.com. Can't wait to see those of you who are going to be there in person. Make it a great week. So my opinion on this is I agree with everything Nicole said, but I have some additions. I want to start off with what I led into this with, which is probably as soon as possible. And what I mean by that, if you're earning $10,000 in income from a business, it should be on your IRS return. It, it should be on your tax return. You should report that number to the government. I know there's people out there right now screeching into the, the computer where I can't hear you as though I can going, You're supposed to be an agorist! Why do you want to give the government money? I don't want to give the government money. I want to keep more of my money. So here's what I'm going to tell you that is my God-honest opinion. And there may be some business somewhere that somehow breaks this. But if you're making $10,000 in revenue on a business, you should be able to exceed that in deductions off of that business. When you look at what you can get for mileage deductions alone, etc., okay? And I'm not talking about cheating. I'm talking about looking at the tax code, which looks like two giant phone books from a major metropolitan area when people used the yellow pages in the mid-'80s where 90% of the pages in those books tell you how to not pay taxes. And focusing on that 90%, you should be able to come up with $10,000-plus in deductions. Let's say you can come up with eleven. That just took $1,000 off of your tax burden from your job income. You see how that works? See how simple that is? Like, if you lose money, it goes against all your income, not just your business income. 
So it reduces your, so let's say you made $50,000 at a job, just rounded numbers, $10,000 on a business, that's $60,000 you have to pay tax on, you got standard deductions and things like that, whatever, you ain't going to pay much anyway, but just throw that number out there, 60 grand, that's what your tax is going to be based on with all the stuff that comes out of it. Now that business that made you $10,000 cost you $11,000 on paper, you're now going to pay tax on $59,000. It's that simple in the math. And again, if you have a, a business making ten grand and you can't find $11,000 or more in deductions on it, you're not trying hard enough. I would say that 99.5% of the time, and again, I'm not talking about cheating, you definitely want to run the things that you're going to do past an accountant minimum. You're probably not at tax attorney level yet at that level of income, but you know the basic information that Matt puts out for free that Nicole mentioned would be a good idea. As far as legal structure, LLC, S-Corp, whatever... If you have an LLC and you are a single person LLC with no other people in it, so you're not going to do a K2, all the income's going to pass through to a single individual, between that and a sole proprietorship, which you don't need any paperwork, you just put down sole proprietorship on your tax return, from a tax deduction standpoint, there's literally no difference. There's literally no difference at all. It's an expense that qualifies or it doesn't. There's, and I'm not going to get into it. I'm not a tax attorney myself, but there's different reasons for structures like LLCs and S-Corps. That's a tax attorney discussion, or at least a very informed CPA discussion. That is not a Jack Spirico discussion. But again, sole proprietorship, there's nothing with some very few exceptions that one with a sole proprietorship cannot deduct that somebody with an LLC can with an S-Corp, you're getting this saving money because of how you pay yourself. You can cut back your Social Security, etc. Uh, how much you have to contribute for, for that. Because you can pay yourself something. But, and that's, again, that's another structural question. But you, 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 if, you're, if you can't find $10,000 worth of deductions on a $10,000 business, try harder. Don't cheat, but try harder. Anyway, and that will give you a track record of tax returns as self-employed, and someday, the, lar- the larger number of consecutive years of that may really pay you some dividends I can't get into today. But there's no reason for you to be paying any additional income tax on that money. You just need to think about how you understand tax code. Moving on, let's hear about fitness when you're on the road from Andy McCann. Hey, guys, this is Andy McCann with CrossFit Garage here to answer your health and fitness questions. I got a question from Deep Thought 42 Love the reference there. Hope you guys get it. He says, I am a traveling salesman much like you guys, and I am on the road a lot. What, if anything, can I do to help myself with health and fitness? Okay, so I'm going to go on the fitness and the move side of it. If you're traveling a lot, I'm assuming you're staying in hotels. If you're staying in a hotel, almost every hotel has some sort of fitness facility ready to go. So if you want to just like get it done, here's what I do when I travel. Almost everyone is going to have some sort of treadmill or bike. So I start off with just 10 minutes on the treadmill or bike just go, right? And then I move over to the uh, dumbbells and I will pick up the first set of dumbbells and do 10 thrusters. A thruster is basically when you squat all the way so your your uh, crease of your hips is below the top of your knees, the weights are resting on your shoulders, and then you stand aggressively and then drive the dumbbells up in the air. So it's a great movement, hits about everything. You gotta push the weights up, then you gotta control them on the way down. So I will do 10 with the lightest weights. Take a deep breath. Grab the next weights and do another set of 10. And I keep going up. So the funny part here is sometimes there are weights in these uh, racks that have never been touched and they're super dusty because they're like, I don't know, like 70, 80 pounds. 
Those ones I can't really use, or if I can, I may just do like one or two or three, and that's okay. And then when I'm done, I'll go back over to the bike and do a cool down. I'm just going to move. So did I move? Yes. Is it going to move the needle? Yes. Is it glorious and sexy, and did it have to be like like – you know, four time and somebody's watching me and I'm, I'm moving crazy. No, I'm, if you're doing absolutely nothing, then anything's better than nothing. So that's one thing. That's what I like to do. The other, which I'm not a complete fan of, but I have done in the past is use their stairwell. So you just go to the stairs and start climbing and then walk back down, start climbing. Weirdly, the going down motion tends to hurt my knees. So I have actually gone to the elevator and just ridden the elevator down then found the stairs again and walked back up. So what I like about these particular ones is that the, the, the workout itself is also the warm-up and the cool-down. So maybe the first set of stairs, I just go up nice and leisurely, and then I go up the second step, and I say, okay, what was my time? I don't know. Let's say it took me ah, four minutes to get to the top of the steps. All right, I want to beat that four-minute time. So the next one, I go a little bit faster, and then I'm going to go a little bit faster, right? How many times when I go up? Man, it, something is better than nothing. So um, if you're in the world of CrossFit, then you know that it's about an eight- to 12-minute workout, and they want to do couplets and triplets. So th- there's some reason around that, but that's not the question. The question is, what should I do? I would say you're going to go up and down or work out in the, uh, uh, the, their facilities for about 30 minutes, and I would include that as part of the warm-up. Now, Here's the other kicker. Just because you're moving doesn't mean you get a pass on stretching. Dude, man. So at 50, I have a stretching or a rolling out routine that I do. It doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be consistent. Easiest thing to do is what's hurting right now? What feels it? If it's your lower back, if it's your hamstrings, if it's your quads or your biceps or whatever, then spend more time there. It's not that this stuff is like rocket science and it's super crazy. Humans have been on the earth for a very long time and we've done really well just moving. The problem is we sit all day and we don't really move. So if you're at a hotel, check out its facilities. If it's got a uh, treadmill or a bike, start there, then do the, the, the thrusters and then go back. If it doesn't, or if you want to mix it up, do the stairwell. Then there's always, and I'm not a huge fan of this, I just don't really like to jog, but you can just go out and jog. That's better than nothing, so it's something. And if you want to really play the game well, start tracking it and just do a little bit more every time. It doesn't have to be crazy and involved. It just has to be done. All right, hope that answers your question. And if you need to get me direct, you can find me at CrossFitGarage.com or email me, Andy, at CrossFitGarage.com. I have nothing to sell you, just giving out advice because I want people to be healthy and fit so that they can live their best lives in their 90s and um, survive the zombie apocalypse. All right, guys, take care. So so my thoughts on this one are, I, I agree. If you're staying in a hotel Unless it's like, I don't know, maybe Motel 6 or something. Most people that travel for work, they have enough flexibility to at least stay in a halfway decent hotel. A Hampton, a, a Courtyard, a, a Hilton, or you know, a Garden Inn, something like that. They inevitably have a, a fitness room. And it, you know what? The beautiful thing about them is they really don't get used that much. It's almost... Never the case that I've been in a hotel where I'm like, there's a line waiting to use machines at the fitness room. So you've got that. But I, I would bet that in this day and age, I know a lot of people that travel for work, and if they travel all the time, they are given a certain allowance for how much money they can spend, and they get a much better experience using Airbnb or Vibro than a hotel. And so they're they're doing I have a friend. He's renting a different Airbnb like every two weeks. He works like two weeks at a shot, and then he goes on to another one just for the experience. And a lot of those will not have fitness equipment. However, many of them do. 
And simply by looking for ones that do, you may be able to get around that. The other thing is you can always take a walk, you can always take a jog, you can always take a run. Um, a lot of people that travel give a shot to uh, the weights that you can take with you that are not real heavy because they're empty and you fill them up with water when you get where you're going. Universally, I've heard they suck. I've never tried them. Uh, people make a lot of uh, a big deal about the weight of water. And water is heavy at eight, eight and a third pounds a gallon, roughly. But it's still only eight and a third pounds a gallon. And a gallon is a lot of water. So you don't get a lot of weight from the dumbbells that are made out of these and some stuff. One of the really great tools, though, for the traveler with fitness to me are resistance bands. And I don't have a specific resistance band that I recommend. You can look and find what you want. But you can get a really good workout with resistance bands because not only are you getting the extension but the retraction. So if we were doing something like putting it on the the, the head of a board, uh, a bed headboard or something, someone can anchor it to in a room uh, or a door or something like that, and we were standing and we were doing basically like push-outs, where it's like you're punching at shoulder level, arm, either both together or one and one, you get the, the extension outward you have to use against the resistance, but simply by coming back slowly, you're working a reverse resistance the entire way back. They give you a really good workout. That's just a little add-on to that one. Anyway, I like what Andy did there. I would like more questions for him. And if we can get enough questions for him to keep him regularly on the show, we will add him officially to the expert council. Now let's hear from someone who probably needs no introduction to people that listen to the show regularly. Expert council member Dr. Ken Berry with some thoughts on B6 and the carnivore diet. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry today answering a question from Matthew. Uh, seems like it's nearly impossible to hit the vitamin B6 RDA on a carnivore diet, particularly a beef, butter, bacon, and eggs diet. I know there are some in beef liver and more in chicken liver, but it seems like we approach or exceed safe vitamin A levels by eating a sufficient quantity of liver. Uh, is it like vitamin C where we probably need a lot less on a proper human diet? It's a great question. Uh, I think you can get plenty of vitamin B6 from a proper human diet without supplementation. There's several things at play here. First thing you need to know is that your body can store vitamin B6. So you don't need to eat vitamin C, vitamin B6 rich foods every single day. Your body can store plenty in your muscles and some in your liver. That's uh, concept number one to understand. Concept number two is that, yes, beef liver, all liver is a great source of vitamin B6. And a lot of people out there are talking about, oh, don't eat liver, you'll get vitamin A toxicity. Uh, this is foolishness, okay? There is not a single recorded case study of a healthy human developing vitamin A toxicity from eating the liver of domesticated animals to their taste's consent, uh, uh, content. So in other words, yeah, if you're eating two pounds of beef liver every day and you, you don't even want it, but you're just eating it because you think it's a multivitamin, multimineral, well, it is. But you might develop vitamin A toxicity if you're eating just a stupid amount of liver every day. But if you're eating two to four ounces of liver once or twice or thrice a week, you're never going to develop a vitamin A toxicity. So yes, any liver is a great source of B6. Also, there is vitamin B6 in any cut of beef, any cut of sheep, any cut of goat. 
Uh, also, tuna and salmon are great sources. Also, chicken is a good source. Any poultry, chicken, turkey, uh, wild, wild fowl, any of that's a great source of vitamin B6. Uh, the third thing to keep in mind is that when we were set, setting the, the RDA, R, RDI, for all the vitamins, was, it was done a long time ago, and it's back when basically everyone was a bread eater. They were eating all kinds of um, fortified things in their diet and, and plant foods in excess, in my opinion. And so for any of you guys eating a ketogenic diet, a keto diet, then keep in mind that hummus, which is ground up chickpeas, that's a very, very good source of vitamin B6. Uh, and so there are multiple different ways that you can get vitamin B6. Uh, keep in mind that people on a vegan diet, they either have to eat foods fortified with vitamin B6 or they have to take a vitamin B6 supplement. You're not going to have to do that on a well-formulated ketogenic diet, a ketovore diet, or a carnivore diet. Hope this helps. Thanks a lot. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you next time. So I'll, I'll say this again. I, I take a multivitamin every day. Just one. Just one every day. I don't worry about RDA. Don't care. I am 90% I would say a carnivore. Uh, it, I, it's really more of a keto diet that I engage in. Um, I don't worry about it. I think that it would be fine for me not to take that multivitamin, but by doing it, anything that I might be deficient in is taken care of. Uh, the Amazon Basics brand is great. If you go put multivitamin in on the Survival Podcast website, you'll see the multivitamin that I take. And it's just, it's very inexpensive. It's a very cheap insurance policy. I don't take a ton of supplements. I know Ken's pretty much anti-supplement. To me, you know, if it's if it's a nickel a day, and it ensures that you have a well-rounded uh, vitamin mineral supplement added to your you know your diet, and I will also say this: you, you go out and find out how many people um, who are eating carnivore uh, have been diagnosed with their doctor for a B6 deficiency. I think you'll find that to be very 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 low, it, it, probably entirely non-existent anyway. So you probably don't need it, but it doesn't hurt at a nickel a day. Uh, moving on. Let's talk about finding food where you live without growing it. It's called foraging. And uh, I've got another uh, potential candidate to join the expert council permanently, uh, Joe Brenton. And I think he did a fine job with this question. And I could use some more questions for him as well. He uh, focuses on things like wildcrafting and, and wilderness crafting and foraging and hiking and outdoors adventure. So lots to work with there. Send me your questions for him, and let's hear from him on the air officially for the first time right now. Hey, folks, it's Joe up here in the Pacific Northwest answering an expert council question from John, who asks, how do I find what local plants are available to forage in my area? Well, John, it's a good question, and I'll talk today about a few different types of resources for foraging. At a minimum, we're looking for something to help us identify species we can forage or eat, and how to differentiate things we can forage from other things that are unsafe. Ideally, a resource is going to tell us where to find what we're looking for and give us some idea of seasonality or when we can expect to find it. Some resources I mentioned will also talk about how to process or, or what to do with the items that you forage. You know, I think most of us have had some level of foraging knowledge, even if we didn't realize it. Last summer, I was hiking with my son, who was four at the time. We passed a huckleberry bush and he pulled a berry off, ate it, and then looked at me and said, Dad, black and blue always, red sometimes, and white never. I asked him who taught him that, and he said, Papa. 
I smiled because it was the same rule that Papa, or my dad, taught me when I was around four. My dad has lots of good foraging knowledge, but I think that rule was way more focused on making sure I didn't poison myself when I was out exploring the woods behind our house, and he of course passed it on to my son, who is now exploring those same woods. John, I know you're in Texas and I'm up here in the Northwest, but many resources about foraging are going to be similar. One place I would recommend you look is your local agricultural exchange or conservation district. I see those folks at a lot of my local farmer's markets, and they often have books and handouts on foraging in their booths. I know in my area, they also have online resources that you should check out as well. Speaking of farmer's markets, there are also a few vendors in my area that sell foraged items, depending on the season. I wouldn't expect them to give up any secrets, of course, but they might be good sources of information about general foraging knowledge and, and different plant identification. Another obvious resource is the internet. I know in my area, a quick search results in folks who are discussing what and where to forage in the area, as well as in-person activities like foraging seminars and guided walks. You may also be able to find one or more local meetup groups in your area. And oddly enough, r slash foraging on Reddit has some good content and conversation. It looks like foragingtexas.com has some good general information on getting started with foraging, as well as individual species info and some additional resources. Uh, You do have to fight a couple ads there, but generally it looked like a good site. Another good source of information, of course, is books. I think everybody should have a title or two on foraging on their shelf. Books are tough because the best books in my area might be very regional and, and not the same. A couple tried and true books that cover Texas as well as other parts of the U.S. are Edible Wild Plants, A North American Field Guide, and The Peterson's Guide to Edible and Wild Plants in Eastern Central North America. I have that first title and and use it quite a bit. I haven't got my hands on it yet, but I've heard a lot of good things about Sam Thayer's most recent book called Field Guide to Edible Wild Plants of Eastern and Central North America. Another category to consider is uh, titles around ethnobotany, which explore Uh, Native Americans and other early humans and what they ate and how they cultivated different resources. Um, Those are obviously a lot more of a story and less of a reference book, but also can be really interesting and and are good places to glean some knowledge. I think every foraging book on my shelf has come from some sort of used bookstore. You know, newer books like the Thayer book I just mentioned are packed full of color photos, while older books have beautiful pen and ink drawings and have a lot more text to uh, describe how to identify plants. I have a couple of each of them, and, and I think you know, you'll know you decide what style works best for you if, if you want to get into books. Well, I hope that helps you, John, as well as other folks that are interested in foraging. I'm happy to answer your expert council questions around anything having to do with the outdoors, from day hikes to backpacking trips, skiing to kayaking, whether it's talking about what new gear to buy, the best snack to keep a toddler moving down the trail, or how to pick where to hike this weekend and plan the trip. Please send your questions my way. You can also check out Three Peaks Navigation on Instagram or YouTube. It's a new spot where I share knowledge around both analog and digital tools and tactics for all things wilderness navigation. Thanks, John, again for the question, and have a great day. All right, folks, uh, next up is my segment today, and it's a question on the Mitlider uh, gardening method. Uh, What you're about to hear is the audio from a video that I recorded today because I thought this would be helpful uh, in both formats. My question today comes from Durand also known as D, and, and Durand says, would you t- give your take on the Mitlider gardening system and why you don't use it? I'm a member and I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while and don't know if you've ever mentioned it as an option for productive garden. I'm putting my first garden this spring and listen to your Monday podcast. It was very informative. I was at ja- John Bush's Exit and Build and heard the Texas Ready Couple give a class on Metlighter. Would love your comments. Thank you, Durant. Okay, Let, let's talk about this. And I want to stay out of the. I want to say out of the gate. 
I know that every method, straw, bale, you know, you name square foot guarding, everything that's ever been branded a method, including many things that aren't methods, by the way, that are just assemblages of things that we do, uh, back to Eden gardening. So you mulch and you use compost. Great. You can join me and my grandpa back in 1983 with that, and you can call it a method if you want to. But I know all of these methods, on one level or another, for them to get any traction, work. If they didn't work at all, then nobody would do them, and they all have adherence. Uh, the folks from Texas Ready, I know Lucinda over there, I love them. I think they're totally wrong about this, though, uh, from a standpoint of what people need to do to be ready, to be prepared, to be independent, etc. And that's part of why I do not recommend this method. So if this is your thing and you love it, by all means, keep doing it. Because one guy on the Internet says that he doesn't like it, it doesn't affect you, it doesn't hurt you, you can keep growing your fertilizer salt-based food if you want to. And it's way better than probably what you're going to buy at Publix or Albertsons. I'll acknowledge that. So it is what it is. But my concern when I teach people today, and with what I've learned over decades of growing food is, the number one solution that we need to be teaching in the modern world is not chemical, it's biological. Basically, as a gardener, as a market farmer, anything like that, you have a choice. You can be a chemist, or you can be a biologist. Met, Metlighter is based on the fact that, according to their method, plants need 16 nutrients. Okay, so modern agriculture says plants need 3 nutrients. They say that plants need uh, 16 nutrients, right? 10, 5, 16 nutrients. Who says? Who says that that's all plants need? Who says that there are not other things that plants eat? Do, do you know the main thing that plants actually consume? With all due respect to Elaine Ingham and all the fine work she's done with soil science, the bacteria themselves. You know, Matt Powers has done work that has shown us through biology that plants actually kill and consume the bacteria that we have a forethought. Well, they have this symbiotic relationship. The little bacteria gets its little goo from the plant, and it poops out, and it gives the plant... No. Matt's got microscopic images of plant roots literally exploding and consuming bacteria. So, And, and, and then the fungal networks in the soil play, pay huge dividends as well. When you're using a chemical-based solution, I'm not going to say you, you, it's, it's inert. I'm not going to say it's sterile. You guys know, I even teach hydroponics, but we're going to kick that to the side today. If people want to know, you know, is that hypocritical? No, because I teach hydro for a totally different purpose. Metalighter met, met is not done in your house. It's done outside in the ground where it could be much, much better if it wasn't this. What happens when you're using this method is you're actually mixing up these chemical cocktails specifically for individual plants. So like your tomatoes are in this section and we're going to do a specific 16 nutrient blend for tomatoes. And then we're going to do that for peppers, which will probably be really similar, but then a different one for carrots or whatever. And I'm not going to say that the yields aren't good, but I'm about to show you that you don't need this chemistry to make these yields. I'll show you some of mine. Right? It's all from pure organic stuff. But 
everything that's wrong with agriculture today is because we turned to chemistry and turned our back on biology. When I pull a plant out of my garden because it's done for the year, I want to see earthworms everywhere. I want biology everywhere. If I go out at night, I want to he- in, the, in the summertime after a rain, I want to hear what sounds like little seashells going back down into the beach when the water comes up and washes them out, little coquina clamps. That's earthworms, you know, following the principle of everything gardens in my garden. I also do not want to be dependent. So I'm going to say, like, I don't say anybody's wrong for growing their own food, no matter what method they pick, unless they're doing big chem, chem ag and they're just polluting the hell out of everything. But you're using fertilizer salts. And, and I've heard people in this method try to talk around it. You can't. You're using fertilizer salts and you're using it continuously through the season in an un, unlike hydro where you control where it goes in an uncontrolled environment where it runs off into the surrounding ecosystems it's not the best solution for ecology on your entire property it's not horrible you're not an awful person but it's not horrible but you are dependent so if you're going to do it then i would say you should figure out how much chemical you need and you should store at least three years worth of it so if there's a supply disruption you can keep growing your food I've also heard some other people talk about it and say, hey, well, if it gets people started and in the middle of things, all of a sudden they can't get their stuff, it'll be okay, they'll start using compost. Oh, really? How long does it take to make compost? How long does it take to learn how to make really good, high-quality compost? How many people have made what they thought was good compost through their garden and nothing grew? That's why people gravitate to these, like, basically take a pill, solve your problem solutions. That's what this is. It's not horrible. It's just not the best case scenario. Let's talk about, because this is what sells it, right? People are like, oh, look, look at my yields. Look at, look at my production. Okay, let's look at my yields. And nothing that you're about to see if you're watching this video while I talk is anything that used any chemicals whatsoever. Looking at my garden right there, and again, for those on the audio, you may want to pull this video up to look. But that, that's my garden, and, and in the back you're looking at, those are tomatoes, and this is midsummer when most people's production in Texas go to crap, and, and they're up and growing over, and some of those, those tomato towers, basically, they're just growing up cattle panels, you know, they have 10, 12 foot of growth on them, and they're covered in tomatoes. Um, if you look, you know, everyone else shows things big, so I have shard there that's bigger than my head. And, you know, I, I really care more about what you're eating. This is 100% produced on my back property, except for the, uh, the adult cocktails. And, and I'll just keep showing these a little bit at a time. Uh, and, you know, I've got a picture here for those that can't see it. It's a bunch of uh, uh, cabbage worms being consumed by a jumper spider on my property because everything in my gardens is designed with diversity and never not providing nature what it needs and doing everything naturally. And that's why I have predators in my garden. I have jalapenos that you know are hand-sized jalapenos. And it's so early in the year in this picture, if you can see it, that in the background the grass hasn't even really come in. And we already have production like this. This is one of my container-based systems. But it's all soil-based. It's all soil-based. And it's just, I mean, how much production do you need? I have 
nasturtiums I grow over here with leaves on them that we use like spring roll uh, wrappers that are the size of my hands, right? I have in, in an image that I'm showing now, for those that are on the audio, an image that's showing a soil-based aquaponics system. So this is a wicking bed system growing purple sweet potato. Uh, the, the vines cascade down about six feet, then they go around the back. And in the center, if you look close enough at the image, you'll see going up about 14 feet into a tree that's about 10 feet away from where they're growing, in a 50-gallon stock tank, by the way, going 15 foot up the center of a tree. And this is all biology. And all I'll say is, if you can get the kind of results that I'm talking about and demonstrating in this video, if you can get these results without being dependent on chemicals, then doesn't it make more sense to do that than do a method that is going to make you 100% dependent on chem chemicals to do your thing? Now, I'm not one of these weird people. Chemicals, 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 chemicals. Like every chemical's bad. Water... Water is a chemical, right? H2O, dihydrogen monoxide, oh my God. Like, I don't mean it as in anything that is a chemical is bad because you're made of chemicals. But the, the chemicals that you're made of are naturally assembled into a form of biology we call a human being. I want my soil profile that my plants grow in to mimic my body, to be natural assemblies of chemical profiles based on biology. We can use chemistry to understand it, but we want to use biology to implement it. On your property right now, or within you know, a, a small walk from where you live, there are weeds that you can cut and ferment and make plant juice out of and use as fertilizers for free. It's not even hard to do. Um, Stephen Raisner at Potent Ponics and his team, they have built an AI tool. It's not ready for prime time yet, but we had them on the show to talk about it, where you can literally say, I'm trying to grow these crops in this area. What do I make my fertilizer out of? And it will tell you what to mix together to make fertilizer for those crops without buying anything from anybody for basically going out and picking some weeds and throwing them in some water and taking a very simple process at play and taking a biological solution. The last image I'm going to put up, I've shown this a lot of times, um, over the past couple months since I released my bioreactor composting course. But what you're looking at if you're seeing the screen is two plants. They're both longevity spinach. One is planted into a really high-quality potting soil, and I guarantee you that potting soil has more nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium than my compost. I guarantee you it has all the trace elements and minerals because it's made with things like kelp meal and stuff like that. This is an organic solution, but... It, 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 it is fine-tuned. This is a soil that is used by a lot of uh, commercial organic growers, uh, people that produce microgreens at scale to restaurants, etc. It's made by a company called Fox Farm. There's nothing wrong with it. And it is, while it's all organic, it's a chemical solution in that, and when I say solution, I don't mean like a suspended solution. I mean like a solution to a problem. It's a chemical solution, as they said, what do plants need? Well, we'll go get all the organic things that have the things plants need, what they crave, not Brawando, right? But, but, but they actually crave and put them in one, and they made a really good mix. But if you look at it compared to a biology-based solution, which is a compost that's very low in NPK, has smaller amounts of all the trace minerals that the plants need and crave, 
the, the difference is dramatic. And the one with the less nutrient, the one with the less NPK, does better than the one that is chemically defined to be exactly what a plant needs. And there's a reason for it. This is why we have to turn away from chemistry. If you go out to the average field that people farm for beans, corn, etc., and I don't care if it's no-till, I don't care if it's organic, I don't care if it's conventional, if it's being row-cropped and it's not being done with cover crops, etc., and it's not being done right, it's not a true biological solution, and you go out and you test that field to see available phosphorus in it, inevitably, year after year after year, one of the most basic three NPK, you need to buy it and dump it on the field. But if you do a more in-depth test, you'll find the average farm, including the most nastily farmed, conventional, heavy runoff, horrible farm in America today, will average, they have 40 years of phosphorus locked up that the plant can't get to because the biology isn't there. All you're doing is ramping up the chemistry with this method to a much higher level, so you're making sure all the nutrients are always there. You're constantly making additions and adjustments. It's not like you set this up and then you grow for a season and at the end of the season you're done and then you do it again next year. It's, it's a continuous method, if you want to call it that, throughout where you're always you know, adding this and adding that and, and what have you. you know, where the methods that we teach... You do it in the beginning of the year. You plant your crops. Maybe mid-season, one time, you add some additional fertility. Really, really simple. It's usually just you know, either some organic fertilizer that has biology in it and or just some compost. We're using biochar that actually holds the fertility and builds the coral reef of the life web in your garden or your market farm or whatever it is you're growing. And every year, things get better, and every year, you have to add less. Where with this, this metalliter stuff, every year you have to add the same amount or more. And so you're becoming dependent on a system that is based on chemistry. And so again, I know some people are going to hate, like spit venom at this video, or at this part of the podcast, or however you consumed this piece of information. But I'm not saying not to do it or it's bad. I'm saying I'm not going to teach it. I'm not going to teach it because... You know, I'm building an entire curriculum to teach people how to be as independent from the system as possible and to understand that if you want to actually do things in a natural way, you have to come at it from a biological angle. And if you're not coming at it from biology, you'll never be independent. You'll never get off therapy. And it doesn't mean we might not buy some additional product here and there, but we buy them as kickers. We don't need them. We don't need them. I mean, again, you, if you watch the video version of this, you saw the What more do you want? How much more productivity do you want than a giant kitchen island with mounds of peppers on top of it from one 4x8 bed? How much more do you want than a 50-gallon tub growing uh, purple uh, sweet potato that has vines on it that are 25 feet long? Or nasturtiums that are, you know, the, the, the size of a softball. Or, 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 or jalapenos that are almost as thick as my freaking wrist. Cubanel peppers that are freaking as long as my elbow to my wrist. What do you need beyond that? And if that can be done with biology, why in the world would you want to spend your time and your effort and your energy learning a chemistry-based solution? When you could learn a biology-based solution that would give you permanent 
ability to go anywhere in any situation, assess what you have, and develop a solution that you can implement across time and always improve soil quality nonstop with no runoff to cause any pollution problems whatsoever anywhere. Now, I know your little garden with 10 Metweiler beds or whatever is not the reason that the Mississippi River is destroying the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not an eco-freak. You know, I'm a big-time ecologist. I'm very concerned about conservation of resources and fixing the ecology of this planet. But I know if we're going to do that, it's a bottom-up solution. The top is capped, right? The academics won't admit they're wrong. The people selling the chemicals won't admit they're wrong. The people selling the giant combines are not going to admit they're wrong. All the people profiting off of what we're doing won't admit they're wrong. So if you're going to go out and tell a farmer, hey, you know, you need to do a more natural approach, and then he turns around, in your backyard, you're growing a chemically based, basically you're doing hydroponics in the ground, right, with no control of what happens to the excess nutrient. That's what you're doing. And, you, and all the people in that method, they can try to talk around it. I won't put them down as, as bad people or anything. I'm not going to say they're destroying the planet. But if you really want to scale production... You can either do it with what you already have, or you can continuously buy a solution. This is why I recommend you definitely take my compost course. It's 40 bucks. That'll cost you less than a bunch of chemicals. And in a year's time of one going through one cycle, you'll be able to produce more than anybody with any chemical-based system can ever produce per square foot. And it'll get better every year, and you'll have complete freedom from a supply line that isn't really what you want to be tied to in the first place. And you'll be able to scale up or down as much as you want to because your cost of scaling will only have to do with your labor input for ground prep and your labor input for how much compost you make. And, you know, we can make 300 pounds of compost and we can use that to treat an acre of ground. Do that with Metweiler and something from a bag then maybe I'll be interested in what those folks have to say. Again, it is an unnatural solution to a problem that has been created by unnatural solutions. Just my thoughts. Again, you're, you can feel free to do whatever you want with that information. Uh, I won't hold it against you if you have a different opinion. Well, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and remind you guys uh, here at the end that if you want to help support the show and the work that we do, you can always do that uh, by starting your uh, online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, whenever you shop online, you'll help us out no matter what it is that you eventually buy. I don't have a new item of the day for you today. I have the same one as yesterday, and I'm, I keep bringing this back and all things uh, that are related to starting your seeds because you're running out of time. This is the time of year where if you're missing anything, it's time to pick it up. Get those seeds in the pots. Get them going so you can set them out in the garden after your first frost or your last frost date. So I have the two-inch nursery pots for starting seedlings. I love these things. Um, they are really well designed for for being as cheap as they are. You get a hundred of them for twenty bucks, so two dimes a piece. You'll definitely get multiple uses out of them. The holes in the bottom are well designed for watering from the bottom and for drainage both. And what's really nice is that. You'll, if you look at the, the images, you'll see that it has like little feet. So you have some of the holes in the bottom. Half of them are higher than the other. But even the lowest ones have little tiny knobs on them that keep them up from touching the surface completely. That ensures both drainage and the ability to wick up from the bottom. Uh, I always do a lot of research when I pick a product. This is a great product for starting your peppers, your eggplants, your tomatoes, your lettuce plants. Anything you want to start indoors before you set it out. These are great. They're about the size 
of a large-sized six-pack individual cell, uh, but they're individual so they can be moved around, and, and, and I just find that more flexible than using six-packs. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, let you know that tomorrow is going to be a flashback Friday. And uh, you should tune into those uh, different interviews from the past. You know, we're we're pulling stuff out of like 2010 right now. It's some real great wisdom. Uh, I know some of you guys love it, and some of you probably don't listen. I can tell just by the the number of downloads we get. Uh, yeah, that's the old stuff. Don't miss it, guys. Like there is so much wisdom in that catalog. And when I realized how much of it was just languishing, bringing it around again made a lot of sense. It's given me some time back to be with my family on Fridays. Uh, and uh, it's it's going to be a great one tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to wait to see. And then we'll be back on Monday to do it all over again. Also, a little call out right here to consider joining the Members Brigade. Uh, I have a new uh, MSB vendor. I did do a post about it, but I never officially announced it yet, and it's just a lot of stuff going on right now. But we have a new company called EasyDigging.com that was just added to the MSB. These guys are great. I found them looking for a product called a Jab Planner. They're the only people in the country that import this product. It's awesome, but they have a lot of other really cool stuff. Broad forks, wheel holes, uh, cedars, like roll cedars, grub hose. It is an awesome, awesome company. Even with it kind of flying under the radar that we have added them, I've heard from several people that have like, I've already gotten a great discount uh, off of Easy Digging. I didn't know about the stuff that they had, so thank you for that. So uh, I will make sure that it's in the Daily Mail today, and we'll do a proper full announcement for them on Monday next week. But you can check them out now, easydigging.com. And if you're an MSB member, the discount code and everything you need for them is already in the back office of the MSB. Uh, with that, I'll wrap up. Thank you for tuning in today, and uh, catch us tomorrow on our Flashback Friday. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. You never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way